Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we bow our head before you and we thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for the privilege it is to be able to sing of your graces and your mercies to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray that what we have confessed, what we have, what we have sung, we pray that it has prepared us to receive your word. And pray now that you would give us hearts that will be open to receive your truth, that the Holy Spirit will work in us to transform us and to conform us to the image of your Son so that we will live lives that will glorify him who saved us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We pray for the one who may be far away from Christ, that that person will be drawn to him in salvation and will be born again. I pray that your Holy Spirit will demonstrate power through the word, that you will cleanse my own heart, that you will kill those sins that so easily cling to me, that Lord, that you will use me to communicate what you have revealed here in this text. And God, we ask these things so Christ will be exalted and your name glorified. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 3. And we are going to begin reading in verse 8. And so stand with me as we go there. The message today is entitled, Put Away the Old Self. Put Away the Old Self, Colossians 3, verse 8 through 11. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it is spring. And for most of us, that means spring cleaning. Out with the old, in with the new, right? It means getting your kids to find clothes that they no longer wear or they've outgrown and to box them or bag them and give them away. Or maybe you have teenagers and you just walk in the room and you see their clothes and smell their clothes and it's not give them away, it's get rid of them completely, like burn them in a fire or take them out to the trash when no one else is around. All humor aside, as we come to this passage this morning, Paul actually employs an analogy that has to do with clothing or garments. And if you go to verse 8, you will see that Paul employs words that are encouraging this young church of new believers to not only kill sin that remains in them, but to change clothes, to change garments, to strip off the filthy clothes, the filthy clothes of their former life and all of the practices of sin that would have reeked from those filthy clothes and that identity. And the reason that Paul says this to this church is because sin is our greatest enemy and it must be taken seriously. We've emphasized that in previous days. In fact, I, I, I want you to consider a quote from Henry Scougal, a Puritan, where he writes, There can be no treaty of peace till we lay down these weapons of rebellion with which we fight against heaven. We cannot expect to have our distempers cured, our affections cured, our attitudes cured if we are daily feeding on poison. 
Well, that demonstrates the seriousness of sin. And Paul, here, as he's writing this early church of believers, he uses this changing clothes reference not only here, but throughout the New Testament. In fact, you'll see it in Romans chapter 13. You'll see it also in Ephesians chapter 4. You'll see Peter use it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. And usually it is accompanied with these words, put off, strip off, get rid of, and put on. The Christian life then involves not only a new war, a warfare, the Christian life not only invo- involves a new warfare, it also includes a new wardrobe whereby we dress, we dress what we have become in Christ. We dress in what we have become in Christ. Why? Why are we to put on the new clothes of what we have in Christ and put off the old? Well, look at the text in verse 8. Paul says, but now. And again, he's just building on what he's already said. The conjunction, but now, shows that the Christian has experienced a dramatic change in salvation. If you're a believer, you have been transformed. You have been changed. You have died to sin. You've been raised with Christ to live a new life focused on Him. And your life, if you go back up to verses 1-4, through look what Paul says. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And so, isn't it interesting that the way that the Apostle Paul talks about becoming a Christian or the way he talks about what it means to be a Christian, is he doesn't use the language of decision. He uses the language of divine life. True Christianity is really not a decision. I'm not suggesting that we don't make a decision, but what I am suggesting is is that true Christianity, it is divine life. In other words, what has happened when you became a Christian is your soul was united with God in Christ. And you received a new nature. You became a new person. And Christ is now being formed in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that you and I have become partakers of the divine nature. Remember what I said? You're born a sinner with just a sinful nature. But when you became a Christian, you were born again and given a new nature. And because you have been given a new nature, your new goal in life, your new prize value in life is Christ and living for His glory. And your new goal in life is to pursue Christ's likeness. And that is why, church, if we have new life in Christ, then here's the key truth Paul's driving home. Right along with putting sin to death. We must put away our old self with its sinful ways and put on the new way of living in Christ. In other words, put off the old clothes. Get rid of the old clothes. And put on the new clothes of this divine life that you have received in the Gospel of Christ that has saved you. So there are really two things that that these verses are going to put to us. One, what must we put away? What does He tell us we should put away? And then why should we put those old clothes away? So let's start with what we must put away. Look at verse 8. What we must put away. He says, but now you must put them all away. Now that includes all the sexual immorality of the previous verses, but now he gives you a second list, and look at the list. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So notice first, we must put away certain attitudes. So now again, verse 6 and 7, Paul provides a list, a catalog we said last time, of sexual sins that we are to kill. Now Paul provides a list of social sins 
that will not, not only originate in our old natures, but they will affect our new relationships in the local church with other believers. So we must put away certain attitudes. Well, let's just walk through the attitudes that he mentions here. The first one is anger. And by the way, you can just jump right down to verse 12 and you can look ahead if you want. We'll be preaching it later. And you can see what we're to put on. We put off and we put on certain things. So we put off anger. Now, one writer, Christopher Ash, a pastor in the United Kingdom, he observes that anger is the drawn sword of human relationships. That's a good analogy. It's the drawn sword. And before it strikes, it must begin with a feeling and then end with an action. Now just think about that, right? Think of all the relationships that you know of or that you have had that have been damaged or even destroyed by sinful anger. Marriages scarred. Children hurt. And churches split over misguided anger. Over anger rooted in the heart, but never uprooted out of the soul by the work of the Spirit. It is an attitude of hatred. It is an attitude of bitterness that is wielded at others, even the innocent. And what anger will do is it will build and boil until it explodes and then flows over. And if we're honest, we usually get angry when something we want or treasure is threatened or taken from us. So the Apostle Paul says, anger, we need to be rid of it. But, but here's the other thing. Anger has some close cousins. The cousins of wrath and malice. Because these are all attitudes that, can, that, that are in us, in our old natures. Well, what does he mean when he says wrath? So get rid of anger. Get rid of these attitudes of hatred and bitterness. He says, and wrath. This would be the explosion, right? Anger explodes with wrath. This is the sword going towards someone. No longer just kind of fluttering around in the wind, but now the sword is going after someone. Wrath is the explosion of anger. And when anger turns into wrath it then is directed at other people. And, and what Paul is saying is, is that this should not be the case in the life of believers together. So we have to put away from among us, we should put away anger and wrath, and then he gives you the next one, malice. Malice is simply viciousness. It is, it is evil. It is hatefulness. And a malicious person plans evil and rejoices when misery befalls another. It is that attitude that desires the destruction of another individual. In that attitude, in that internal attitude, that's the movement of anger. Anger and wrath and malice, they all go together in one happy evil family in our sinful fallen nature. Malice damages fellowship. It dispenses harm. And it will destroy unity. But I want to dig just a bit deeper when it comes to this sinful anger that is in the old man. Sinful anger, really, it's rooted in our inordinate desire to be God. It is really rooted in our desire to be God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 4, do you remember the scene with Cain and Abel? And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You know why? Because Cain did not operate in accordance to the requirements of God. And do you know what the text says? Cain was very angry and his face fell. And Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? It's an indicting question. And do you really want to know what Cain's problem was? He wanted to be God. That's what. He wanted to write the rules. 
He wanted to determine what sacrifice was acceptable and not acceptable. And when God demonstrated His godness, then Cain got angry and his face fell. We know what that is, right? We, anybody that has children, or for that matter, anybody married, right? I mean, just we know that face falling, right? That angry look that all of a sudden something's changed. And so, and, 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 and what God does is, is He identifies this, and really what you see is, it is Cain's desire to be God. And that's why he's mad. Go to, if you, you don't have to go there, but I'll just flip over to Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar, when he constructed the golden image, and he demanded all of the people to bow down to the golden image? And you had three Hebrew children who would not bow, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? And they wouldn't bow. They refused. And they, and, and, and he says, listen, uh, what they said to Nebuchadnezzar is that if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen to this. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times. Isn't it interesting that his furious anger was demonstrated in the fiery furnace? So his anger, what was he mad about? He was angry because not only could he not control Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, he wasn't God. He, he could not be God. He could not require the worship of these three people as he demanded. If you go over to James chapter 4, James the apostle and brother of the Lord Jesus Christ defines what is at the root of all our arguing and quarreling. We desire even good things in life. But then when they don't happen to us, we react and respond sinfully. Because we don't get what we want. And what happens is our depraved view of self gives us this illusion that we have to be in control. That we should be in control. And that we must get what we want. And when our desires are not fulfilled, our expectations are not met, or sense of self-worth not formed, well, we get angry. And most, most adults don't act like children where they just go in the corner and put their hands up and then they pout. No, we're more cynical than that. And what happens is our anger will turn to wrath and then malice and we will destroy the very things that we seek from the people that we should truly actually love. I mean, think about all the things. We, we say this when we're talking in our marriages, right? Isn't it interesting that most of our arguments, most of the things that we get angry about, in the end, when we reflect, they're, they're stupid. They're ridiculous. But in the moment, what is happening, it's that rage, it's that sinful desire. And, and the very thing we want, we turn to the opposite. We want, we want quiet and peace at the table, but then we're yelling at everybody to be quiet because we want peace and quiet. Or we react unkindly to our spouse. And the result of it is we end up, anger ends up destroying. This is why James chapter 1 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, per, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so while we've given kind of a, a broad view of anger, malice, and wrath, think about then the life of the church, because that's who Paul's writing to. How do we often demonstrate anger in the local church? Well, I'm sure we could come up with a lot of things, but I'll just give you a few. Sometimes we have theological axes to grind, right? We have theological axes to grind, and what happens is, is that we become furiously angry with anyone who might disagree with us. Now, it's like I always sometimes say, you know, I don't, you don't have to agree with me on everything. Right? You don't have to agree. I mean, even though you'll eventually see that I'm biblically right. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just, just kidding. 
Sometimes I'll say that in my own home, and yet they'll laugh like you did. But right, we have to understand that our theology should make us loving and gracious. Shouldn't make us angry. And so, over the years of ministry, I've seen this over and over again, that we must, as we grow in our faith, we must learn and discern what it is that are first-tier issues. Things that we absolutely cannot bend and cannot compromise and let those be the hills that we die on and all the other things let us love and let us work with one another. And when I speak pastorally, how do I bring people along in the journey? But here's another one. Sometimes we're immeasurably impatient with others, aren't we? Just in general. We're impatient. Years ago, I would come home from a conference to be, or I'd be reading a book and I'd be sitting in the, in the living room and, or the, in the dining room and I would look at my wife and I would just be frustrated. I'd be frustrated with my family. I'd be frustrated with the church and I'd say, I don't understand why no one else gets it like I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my wife would, very kindly point out this. Well, maybe the rest of us aren't reading what you're reading or growing right now in the area you're growing. So lead us and love us and be patient so that others will get to where God has you. And in doing so, you didn't always understand what you do now. That's what growth is. She's not a preacher. She's just my wife. But the point is, is that that would be, that was so helpful. I had to adjust my expectations. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. And I would be the first to tell you, patience does not come easy. You see, this is how that's demonstrated. One other thing. Sometimes we are irritable and short-tempered. Unprovoked usually. No one knows what our problem might be until we're asked or make contact and then suddenly we're loose cannons, easily triggered, and then we direct whatever ammunition we have barreled up inside of us at each other. Paul's saying, don't be that way. And then others, sometimes we hide our anger behind our words and our actions so that we can manipulate to get what we want. We can hide our anger with self-pity or false humility. And then what we do is inadvertently we enslave people to our expectations because in the end we want to get what we want. And so what Paul says is, listen, sinful anger in all of its cousins and in all of its forms, it needs to be put away. It needs to be cast aside We must put away these sinful attitudes, which then unfold into the next thing. We must put away sinful speech. So if the sword of anger is drawn and aimed, this is how it strikes. Look at verse 8 again. He says, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. So slander. In some translations, the word is blasphemy. It's the same word used in the commandment that we shall not take the Lord's name in vain. We shall not blaspheme Him. We will. Not, we should not. Uh, we should not um, attack His character, defame His glory. And so, what Paul, when he uses this word slander, slander is an attack on the dignity of another that degrades their value as a person made in the image of God. James talks about this in what he instructs about the use of our tongue. That at one point we can be praising and building up and singing songs and of worship to God, and the next minute we can be slicing each other into pieces. And so this is often done, slander at least, is done with falsehoods and lies that we, you, we employ to attack others. And then the next one is obscene talk. You could also, you, you could also say ab- abusive speech. This is the use of words and language designed to inflict harm. This kind of abusive language comes in rage and fury when it is administered. 
This speech is filled with hateful disregard for others and possesses no concern for their personal well-being or for the truth. So you see what happens with the Gospel? We said last week that it invades all of our personal spaces. And it gets right into our inner being and it addresses the very things, the very sins that so easily cling to us. I mean, how many of us would say, whether it be in our home or our relationships in the church or our relationships with others that we have used words and language in a way that does this very thing. Paul says to the Ephesian church, let no corrupting talk, no abusive language come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for... Look at this, building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now church, listen, this is not talking about... I mean, there, there, there's a, there is a fine line here. And so when we identify this kind of sinful speech, it tears down and it cuts and it slices. This is not talking about reproof and rebuke and correction and instruction. Sometimes I have to speak clear words to my children. Sometimes I can speak those words in a sinful way. But oftentimes I have to speak truth to them and sometimes truth will hurt. Sometimes words must wound with truth. Even the Proverbs teach us that. What, what wise speech does is wise speech seeks to build up and give grace even when hard truth must be spoken. And so we put off not just sinful attitudes, but we put off sinful speech. We must be engaged in a warfare against sin and we must be stripping off the old and going to that wardrobe and putting on the new that has come to us in Christ. That's why people said of Jesus that no man ever spoke like this man because He was able in His sinless humanity to be able to speak the truth, yet to dispense love in such a way that distinguished Him from all other human beings. So we put away sinful attitudes. We put away sinful speech. But what is the third thing we're to put away? We're to put away sinful lies. Sinful lies. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says... Do not lie to one another. So, so one of the things I said last week that I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is that it, he's not speaking to a church acting like they all have it together. And neither is he presenting, presenting himself as one that has it all together. But instead what he is doing is, is, is he's teaching. He's giving these imperatives that come to us in light of the gospel, and he's saying, listen, church, don't lie to one another. Build a culture of trust with one another. And the language is clear, because look at the direction. Don't lie to one another. This is life in the church. Here in the church, we can live openly, and we can speak truthfully. I, I, that's the indication. To one another. We are to speak truth to one another, and not lie to each other. We must be people of the truth who speak truthfully and live truthfully before each other. You know what that does? It's just like any other relationship. It builds trust with one another. And so the direction of lies can be to one another. We're to cut off that direction and be people of the truth. But, but, but you see here the danger of lies, don't you? I mean, look at the danger of the danger of Do not lie to one another. What would be the danger of lies? Well, nothing is of greater threat to any relationship than lying and a lack of trust. So think about why do we lie? Why do we lie? I mean, we can think of that broadly, and then when we think about Paul speaking here to the local church, how, how is it that we, we could lie? Well, obviously this goes back to the fact that the devil is the father of lies, and that in our sinful old nature... Right? That, that definitely is, is part of that old nature. But, but I think we lie because we think it will gain us advantage with one another or it will gain us advantage in certain situations. We lie because of self-pride and self-righteousness. 
And in the church, we don't want to be exposed or our weaknesses to be seen. That's why we lie. Right? We're trying to present something that in and itself probably is not true. We want others to believe that we have it together, that we have the quintessential perfect Christian life, and everything is together. But there's not a week that I walk in here that, one, I have it all together, and I never step up into this pulpit thinking that everyone listening to these sermons have it all together, and all they need is some self-help philosophy that will just get them down the road a little bit more. What we have is Christ and everything else is a mess that He's putting back together. And so there's no reason for me or you to need to appear to each other to be better than what we really are. Because what that does is it fuels a lie that we believe that we're good. And all of it undermines the Gospel. The Gospel hits us with the truth. And you know what the Gospel does? The Gospel frees us to be truthful about our sin and about our Savior and about the fact that He's still working on all of us. He's rescued us and He's working in us. I love this quote from the Gospel Primer written by a guy named Milton Milton Vincent. And he says this, Why would anyone be shocked to hear of my struggles with past and present sin when the cross has already told them I am a desperately sinful person? That's a great statement. I mean, of all the people that I could be the most truthful with, it should be you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, of all people, we should be the most understanding with one another that there are highs and there's lows. There's mountains and there's valleys. There's good days and there's bad days. There's battles and warfares. And then there's times that we're fellowshipping at the table. That's the Christian life. And we should be able to live truthfully and share truthfully in that. I don't have to lie. I don't have to cheat. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put masks. Aren't you glad masks are, for the most part, a part of the past? The Gospel has freed us and tells us the truth about each other and about our position in Christ and about the grace of God that has formed us as His people. So put away lies. Not just telling lies, but put away living lies. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I mean, if there's anything that strips us of of, of this temptation to live untruthfully and deceptively, it's that verse right there, paired here with Colossians 3. But if I might say, when we think about these sinful attitudes and sinful speech and, 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 sinful, and, and sinful lies. One of, the, one of the indirect ways that this has become so significant is social media, which we talked about before. Social media has become a landmine when it comes to sinful speech and sinful lies. Because instead of saying what I should be saying to my brother or my sister in flesh and blood, I can just take to social media and then I can air all of my grievances, I can make all of my attacks, and I can justify all of my sins. Right? It can become a horrible tool. And that is why there is so much, even in the larger culture, there's so much concern on the psychological and emotional damage that social media is having with our young people. That's why as parents we should be oh ever so careful of of just opening the floodgates of Instagram and Snapchat and all of these other things. They're just numerous. And they're dangerous. And so the other thing is it's deceiving, right? I mean, think about it. I I, I mean, I've I've used this for years. I, I, I think social media is good for faith, fun, and family. But even that is dangerous because, right... I mean, who posts their arguments? Nobody. It, it's, it, there's facade to it, right? No one looks over at their spouse with a CPAP machine and a hose wrapped around their head and their mouth hanging open, takes a picture and posts that and say, man, I'm married to the most dreamy, wonderful man in the universe. Nobody's posting that. And I hope that doesn't go up of me tomorrow. But nevertheless, 
We don't. We don't post our arguments, our agitations, our not-so-proud moments, kicking the dog while loving the cat, yelling at our children, fighting with our spouse, whatever it might be. The point is, is that when it comes to putting away any of these things, do the deep scan of our own hearts, our old natures in Christ, and do the deep scan of all the ways that we can wield these sins and let us be stripped of them and let us ask the Spirit of God to take them away so that Christ and the Gospel can be displayed as the treasure that He truly is. And that leads us to the second observation, right? This is what we are put away, but why do we put it away? Well, or put, why do, why must we put away the old self? That's the second thing I want you to consider. And look at verse 9, the latter part. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. And so in the second heading, in the second point, why we must put away the old ways or the old self. Paul provides a rationale, a motivation for the imperatives. It's not just a moral imperative. It is a moral imperative that is driven by what Christ has done in the Gospel. So look at two reasons that we should put away sinful attitudes and sinful speech. Number one, we have a new identity in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. Look what he says. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, you're a new person. Paul's reminding them, you have become someone new. This is what has happened to you. God has done this. You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't reform your life. No, God raised you and redeemed you and rescued you. You're a new person. When a couple gets married, a young woman will change her name, her last name. She'll take on the last name of her husband. Her identity has been changed. It's something that happens to her at the moment that the commitment is made, the covenant is entered. And, and, and that said, it can still be a process, a challenge to get everything changed and get used to that new marriage identity, but the identity has changed. Now everything else will follow. And so the Gospel has changed your identity. That identity that you had associated with the first Adam. The Adam in the garden who fell and plunged into us, oh, the whole world into sin. Putting off sin, then, is not a self-improvement project. It is a grace given to us in Christ. Like that young woman. Her identity has changed but everything else now is coming into alignment. That's what Paul is saying here. The identity has been transformed. Now, become what you are by the power of the Spirit working in you. And so we, we see a couple of things here. So we see that our past identity has changed, put off the old self, with its practices. There he goes after those specific sins of speech, attitude, and lies. And now he tells you the process of renewal. Being renewed in knowledge. Do you see this? The process of our renewal. This is our sanctification. But the gospel drives it. We are, in education, there's a term called we are lifelong, we encourage continuing education or lifelong learners. That's what Paul is suggesting here. Every Christian is a lifelong learner. We are always continuing to grow in our knowledge, learning about God. And therefore, our renewal is a process. All of these things don't die in a day. They die daily. And the way we are transformed or renewed as new creatures, it's a process. Paul captures this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Look at that. 
The key to transformation is beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ and the work of His salvation. In other words, the gospel is what's transforming us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we don't lose heart. Our outer self, our inner man, our sinful nature is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. So what is the key to our renewal? Our spiritual renewal comes as we grow in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Gospel, and the knowledge of His will that's revealed in His Word. His Word identifies these sins, and then the Spirit works in me through Christ to kill these sins, put these sins away, and take off the old clothes of our old nature and put on Christ. I love it in this children's book that I brought up here with me. This is a book called His Grace is Enough. And I've been reading this to my youngest, Elias, and at the end, it's talking about how God makes it right when we get it wrong. And the author says, Believing in Jesus, He gives a new heart and forgives all our sin so new life can start. So there's no need to hide and no need to run. Now you can serve Him with gladness and fun. I love you so much, I want you to know Cling to this truth wherever you go. His grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough to change you and me. What is the key to change? What is the key in the process of our transformation? It is the grace of God that has come to us through the Gospel of Christ that is stripping off these old things and clothing us in new things. And so... That's the process. But notice the pattern of renewal. So, notice the text. In the, in the text, he says, in verse 9, and have the old self with his practice, and have put on the new self. How do we put on the new self? How are we clothed in, in, in getting rid of sin and, and putting on new virtues of Christ-likeness? He says... Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In the image of its creator. Now that is a clear reference to Genesis 1.27. Remember the first Adam? He was created in the image of God, but Adam sinned. In Romans 5, sin and death have passed to all because all have sinned. And so as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, God's image has been shattered and fractured in all of us. It does not mean that His image is missing. It just means it is marred because of sin. And, and in verses 5-8 through eight that we just read, all of these lists of sexual sins and social sins, you can see how distorted humanity is. That's not how it's supposed to be. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and, and, and sexual immorality and, and impurity and idolatry and evil desire. Those are the distortions of humanity because of sin. What Paul says here is, is in Christ comes righteousness and salvation to all who believe. And here's what's awesome about a Christian. In Christ, the image of God is being restored and He is making a new humanity. We are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And God is recreating us not in the image of the old Adam, the first Adam. He is recreating us in the image and likeness of His Son. See what He says in Romans 8? For those of you who knew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so as, we, as we tailor this down, why should we put off sin? Because of our new identity in Christ. No, none of us are Christ. But the work of the Spirit is making us like Him. Hear me, church. In Christ, we can be we are becoming what God intended us to be. That self-love is dying. 
turning us to truly love one another. All of that self-righteousness and pride is dying so that we can truly love and have compassion and kindness. All the things that are listed in verse 12 and on are Christ-likeness. And so that's the power of salvation. And so the goal of the Christian life really is to become more and more like Jesus. But remember, it's a lifelong process. And it's the ability to see, man, where's this anger coming from? That's the first Adam. All that self-love that manifests itself in pride and selfishness and self-pity and all these other sins. That's the old man. But I have Christ. God, make me. Create me new in Him. And make me like Him in all ways. And so we, listen, so we, we have a new identity. We see the pattern of renewal and the process of renewal. But the second thing is, we form a new community in the church. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So what is happening us to individually? Then we're all brought together, and in the church we see the new humanity, the new community called the church. And in the local church, the gospel is displayed. New creatures. And God has brought us together. And, rather, and here's what the gospel does. Rather than divide humanity as sin does and sinful cultural theories, the gospel unites us in Christ. Because the gospel identifies our shared universal problem, which is sin, and provides our shared universal solution, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. And here's what's amazing. In the church, these social sins, that's where they need to be put away. Because what characterizes gospel people are things like love, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, humility, and meekness. And then the world looks at the church and says, where's all the anger? Where's all the malice? Why are these people trying to put to death all of those sins? Because of Christ. We have formed a new humanity. And what happens is there's no more Greek and Jew, which means all the barriers that divided, racial, those religious rituals that divided circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, cultural, things that brought people to hate one another, slave and free, social status, all that is gone. Why? Because the Gospel has saved us. And all those things that caused us to hate now bring us together in Christ to love one another in the Gospel. And so what Paul does at the very end of this, verse 11, is he shows there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. In other words, these barriers are gone. The distinctions aren't gone. But the barriers that would have resulted in malice and hate and anger and slander and all sorts of sins, they're gone! Because we've been saved and redeemed by Christ. And that's why he ends this by saying, but Christ is all. What he means by that is Christ is everything. Our unity is Christ. Christ brings us together. And this means that we, if we agree together and confess who He is and His person, His work of atonement for our sins, that He is the only Lord and Savior and only salvation can be through Him, that He is raised from the dead, that He'll return again, that he is, the, he is the center of our unity together. He is everything. And so while we may not have a lot in common, at least from the perspective of the world, we have the most important thing in common. We have Christ. Christ in us. And Christ putting away the old and putting on the new. And that's why His Christ is all and He is in all. He's in every believer working out our salvation. And so that's why we should put to off these sins of the old self. Because we have a new identity and we form 
a new community. So here's my driving point to you as we leave today, as we conclude. I would urge you, all of us, to resolve to put off the old self, to put away sin, and to pursue Christ-likeness. Strip off the sinful garments. Get rid of anger, malice. Get rid of slander and wrath and lies and live and be clothed in the graces of the gospel. Let us resolve to be that kind of church. To be a church where Christ is all and that He is in all and that is visibly displayed in our relationships with one another in the church. So have you received salvation and become a new creation in Christ? Are you here today? Do you need to be saved? Would you come to Him and be saved? If you're a believer today, what desires need to change? What sins do we need to put away? Is Christ everything to us? Will we put on Christ's likeness and be the church that puts away the old self? Because as J.C. Ryle says, saving faith will always produce some conformity to the image of Christ. May we be conformed to His image. Let's stand and let us pray. Father, this is Your holy word. Thank You for the kindness and grace of what has come to us in the gospel. I pray that You, Holy Spirit, will do the work in our hearts to strip away sin. To strip away these things from us. To put them away and to bring in the new. May we be a people that who are not perfect like Christ, but reflect Christ-likeness as the Holy Spirit changes us from one degree to another. And I pray, Lord, that You will be glorified in the work that You do in our life and in our church. In Jesus' name, Amen.